so the whale. I was sitting in a cinema, which in the afternoon on a Monday was unsurprisingly empty. Maybe one or two people scattered around. So immediately for a film that was going to be taking place in one apartment with the aspect ratio crushed down to 4-3 that I think we'd previously discussed, mm-hmm. already the setting for me seeing the film was starting to feel more isolated, which I think was was going to be in the film's favour. Uh, I know I wasn't going to get the feeling of taking in everyone else in the audience, maybe crying because I heard that that was maybe going to happen because there was nobody there. It was just me and maybe four or five other people. Um, right, the so first if scene, I just jump in there yeah. before you go into the first scene, because we did talk about the 4 by 3 and you believe it was a way to show the isolation of the character, right? And I felt it was more of a way of showing somebody being boxed in or trapped mm-hmm. in an environment. Having seen the film now, do you think it's a good way of showing isolation as opposed to using wide wide angle lenses and showing the guy very much on his own in the space? Or do you think the four by three boxing him in did a better job of showing this guy as being maybe trapped? Well, I I, I was definitely going to get to that, but I don't think it helped the film like at all. I, I, I don't think it took away from the film too much, but it definitely didn't help. I think your assessment of having it in the wide anamorphic aspect ratio shown this guy um, who is rather large, taking up probably more of the frame but being isolated by having a big empty apartment around him, I think that would have actually been more effective because, I mean, it was all the more noticeable when you were seeing it in the cinema that like right. a, a good 50%, like a full 50% of the screen was in darkness. So that'll come down to personal preference, but it, it didn't do the film any favours, or at least none that I was able to identify. Maybe there's something that I'm not seeing, but I think doing it in anamorphic would have worked better. I don't think I've seen a film that's been crushed down to 4-3 that it's actually been effective, with the exception of maybe Robert Eggers' Lighthouse. The Lighthouse. Yeah, yeah. I, I, th- I thought it was, it, I think it was that, done that, well. that was a stylistic choice, I think, that worked in that particular film. Um but I also think it's a bit gimmicky when people use the 4 by 3 method just now. Um, I don't think it always works unless you're doing some kind of throwback. Or, I mean, I actually shot a short film that was shot 16 by 9 and then the director, uh, Stuart Hamilton, wanted to do a special sort of release and he did a 4 by 3 version of it. Now, the film, the whole film, the whole idea is that it's a throwback to the short stories told on like um, BBC and whatnot. So from that perspective... It worked because it fitted the theme of the project, but I think some people can use this 4 by 3 idea as a gimmick, and I don't agree that it always works. And I think isolation for me, show somebody in their space alone would do a better job of showing someone being isolated on their own than boxing them into a little square and saying, right. No, I, I would agree. If, if you were going to use that aspect ratio, it's got to have a purpose. And in this case, it didn't have a purpose because... Similar to the the film with, uh, did you say it was by Stuart Hamilton? Yeah. The the film by Stuart Hamilton and also... The, the Beckoning. It's out there now. The Beckoning. The Beckoning yeah. and The Lighthouse. They had a purpose, whereas The Whale, it was just the aspect ratio. Every other aspect of the film, and it was using conventional modern filmmaking styles in order to tell the story. The aspect ratio, if anything, was a distraction, but you... You started 
forgetting that it was in that because you were getting so drawn in uh, to the film itself. So the first scene, the very opening yeah, frame. I heard it's a very uh, interesting opening scene. Is Brendan Fraser jerking off to gay porn? <laughs> well, there you go. Months of waiting for the movie to come out, and this is what I'm introduced to immediately. A fat man pulling his pudding. Like, not just pulling his button, he is like having to manoeuvre it underneath his fatty deposits to reach and failing in doing so. <laughs> but the man in question, played by Brendan Fraser, is Charlie. He's this, mm-hmm. if you haven't already gotten the idea, he's this morbidly, morbidly obese man who by his own admission was negatively affected by the death of his partner, whom he'd left his wife and his daughter, played by Sadie Sink, a I think in the story it's nine years earlier. Um, Despite this though, Charlie appears like this sweet guy who likes to see the good in people and spends his days teaching students how to write better essays as an online tutor. But due to his own insecurities, he has like the camera on his Zoom calls is blocked off so it's just boxed in black. Right. Which, that actually worked quite well with the the 4-3 aspect ratio because the square took up the entire frame as opposed to it being, you know, having the other webcams on the left and the right side uh-huh. of your perspective. You just got the empty black square with the little title at the top to let you know who that box was dedicated to. Yeah. Uh, so I guess it worked in that regard, but it wouldn't justify a whole film um, being shot in 4.3. So, yeah. He's isolated in his apartment and he avoids meeting people face to face by like, for example, there's the pizza delivery guy that comes to the door, but he just leaves the money in the mailbox and picks up the pizzas on the outside because deep down he's disgusted with what he's become physically. That's very effective and it's established very early on that that's, uh, that's the case. But also early on in the film, thanks to the masturbation, he suffers heart failure. And due to what would later be his desire to have a healthy financial situation left for his daughter, he's refusing to go to the hospital, knowing fine well that going to the hospital would drain his bank account, but not going to the hospital would result in him dying as a result of this heart condition. Um, so far, I think we've got quite a quite a sad premise uh, to the film. What are you thinking of that so far? It seems like something so far that you're going to go see. I think I'd like to see it. If nothing else, it's just I want to see it for Brendan Fraser's performance because all the reviews I have seen of it are very, you know, they commend his performance. Some of them are up and down on the actual film itself and the story and all the rest of it, but I'd not seen anybody yet that said his his performance wasn't Oscar-worthy. So um, a big part of me does want to see it for that reason. Um, It's it's totally a a weird thing because I remember watching, uh, I think it was Criminal Mind. Or some crime show, anyway, and um, there were, you know, an obese woman had had sex with a man, and uh, she'd passed out in the middle of it, and had fallen forward, and basically suffocated him, killed him, and but she didn't want to be known as the fat person that suffocated her boyfriend <laughs> by mistake because she passed out, so she basically told everybody that she killed him, and because she'd rather be known as a murderer than the other. And I wonder how much of that, you know, when you're talking about this character of Charlie, that just popped into my head and I just thought, you know, um, <laughs> it's sad, it's a shame, but it's not something I can connect with or understand, but it's 
it's, 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 it's you know, to be that big. I mean, what's that thing on telly just now? What, 5,000 million, was it? 1,000 pound sisters or something? I don't watch not, that kind of crap. I've not seen it. I've just seen trailers for it. I'm just thinking to myself, like, <sighs> being that big must be so hard to, like, do just normal day-to-day tasks. Well, yeah. And and this film actually tackles that pretty well, showing how difficult it would be to do um, day-to-day tasks. It's, it's actually very effective early on, the prosthetics that are being used on Fraser himself, which we, we get to see in full view with him stripping off naked to go to bed at night and like taking great difficulty in the simple act of walking just to get to the bedroom there's a few scenes where he drops things and he's not even able to pick them up like that that is how indignified this character's life has become at this stage do you think the bean suit that he wore do you think that helped his performance or do you think he could have done it in just a normal fat suit because a bean suit added weight to him which he said has helped him you know, move and manoeuvre the way he thought correctly. Yeah, I mean, there are times where the suit's made to be almost comically large, mostly when Fraser's standing. So while he's actually standing, all the weight's hanging down very low, pretty much to his knees while he trudges around. But it it looks like Fraser's actually went through great difficulty himself to move around Mm. in it, but it does aid his performance. And he also does his best to act through the in-your-face disgusting imagery to see a person who's actually very broken, very hurt, and longing for that reconnection with his daughter, which we'll get onto in a second. But Fraser does the majority of the acting through his voice and through his eyes, uh, especially if you're going to be wearing a fat suit like that. You're going to need... The cadence of your voice is going to have to be perfect, and the expressions that you're able to show with the one part of your body that's not covered by a prosthetic, your eyes. You've got to get those two things down, and he does a fantastic job in doing both. So, a little bit about the setting. It does all take place in his apartment. They try and isolate you in there with him. And this is, of course, based on the Samuel Hunter play. And it feels like a play when you're watching it. Other characters are appearing and disappearing from the front door, which acts almost as um, exit stage right. So when characters are about to leave and he stops them, they'll open the door, but they'll dramatically pause. Like It'll be a proper before they decide to turn around and rejoin the scene as if the actor or actress was about to walk off the stage but make the decision to stay, but still stay in the audience's view. Like being within the apartment, still staying within a live theatre audience's view. So it's a technique, very likely to be fully intentional by Darren Aronofsky to replicate that feeling of the stage play that the movie's based on. And it isn't always very effective. I'm actually going to use that as a, a negative because it sometimes comes across as forcefully dramatic and reminds you that the film's actually taken great efforts to remain within the apartment instead of venturing off outside of it. Who was the cinematographer? Was it Matthew Libatic? Libatic? Can't say his name correctly, but I know I know the cinematographer you're referring to, but I don't know if he's the guy that did this. I wasn't paying attention to that during the opening credits because I know him and Arnowski are friends and they've had a lot of projects together. Um, You don't know? I I, I don't know. He is a fantastic cinematographer, by the way. But the cinematography in this, although I think it's good. It's intentionally made to be 
very glib. It's, you know, the colours aren't pretty, the prosthetics aren't pretty, so it's weird to say that the cinematography is beautiful because it's not beautiful. They make it look as disgusting as it can. The house looks damp and unkempt. There's a lot of browns, there's a lot of blacks. The, the set Greens. design's done it wonderfully. Like the, the areas that Brendan Fraser's sitting around are, you know, it's really messy, but only within his reach is it messy because the nurse wonderfully played by Hong Chow. She almost steals the show as much as he does. Very deserving of her Oscar nomination, and I'm rooting for her. Definitely an Oscar-worthy performance from her. Um, she keeps the apartment very nice and clean, so the area that Brendan Fraser is sitting in is usually messy. Um, but from a cinematography standpoint, it, you're also limited by that 4-3 aspect ratio. I don't want to dwell on that too much, but that is something that limited what could have otherwise been a rather visually impressive film. Um, and I wonder if that was Aronofsky's choice or if that was something that the cinematographer talked him into. So there's one scene in particular very early on where Brendan Fraser's choking on a sandwich that he's eating, and that's requiring Liz, played by Hong Chow, to throw her entire body weight into his back multiple times in order to dislodge it. And the faces and the apologetic repetition that happens throughout the film of Brendan Fraser just saying, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to her afterwards. But you're not entirely sure what he's sorry for. But you get the impression that he, he's feeling sorry for himself and that he's actually also very ashamed of himself. And the, the, that's the first time in the film that we really got to see that. Um, Question it, on that point. Yeah, go ahead. You hear about actors getting very method and getting into the characters, right? And Brendan Fraser has had his run-in with Hollywood. He disappeared, he's come back, right? But you see him in interviews, and he seems to get very nervous, anxious, almost apologetic kind of guy. But I don't remember him ever being like that prior to disappearing. So do you think Brendan Fraser and Charlie have channeled each other in some ways because and, and and the way we're seeing him now in these interviews is a little bit of Charlie well I think that's that's probably highly likely but um, the, the reasons for the characters being like this will be vastly different but it's probably still a contributing factor to the performance for somebody like Brendan Fraser that was out of the spotlight for so long and is trying to almost redeem himself as if he should be apologising for what happened to him. He always seems across like he's the one apologising for what happened yeah. to him in Hollywood. What happened to him in Hollywood was disgusting. He has absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. No. Um, but the, the character in The Whale does have something to be ashamed of. He's left his wife, he's left his kids, and he's regretting doing that now. Um, he, he doesn't regret doing it for somebody that he loves, but he regrets leaving other loved ones that were important in his life left behind. Mm -hmm. um, but there will definitely be some parallels between Brendan Fraser's life and the character of Charlie that would help channel those emotionally driven scenes, of which there were absolutely many. Um, one performance, however, in a film full of great performances, Samantha Morton, uh, would drop in. Uh, she was great in The Walking Dead. She was great in the British um, telling of that uh, the serial killer story uh, I, I, with Tim Roth. I can't. I think the name escapes me. Richard Attenborough played the guy. Um, 
in 10 Rellington Place and they remade it in the BBC and she she played his wife. She, she's a great actress. Street. No. <laughs> About the serial killer. Yeah. Santa Claus no. is a serial killer. No. Well, <laughs> but he comes in your chimney and but yeah, that one performance that really doesn't hit all the notes, it doesn't hit the mark, would be that of Sadie Sink, who is, is a great young actress with likely a very promising future ahead of her, but the character that she's been given in The Whale of mm-hmm. Brendan Fraser's daughter, Charlie's daughter, is that of a very angsty, hate-the-world teenager, and the character doesn't break that until maybe right. the final moments of the movie. She fuels a lot of hatred towards Charlie, um, and that draws a lot of hatred because we've become connected with Charlie. We quite like Charlie, at least I did. So that made me kind of dislike her, although she had a reason to feel how she was feeling. Um, Yeah, we're supposed to feel sorry for her because he left her when she was a girl, but the performance itself, as good as it was, it was lacking substance in the character for the audiences to really connect with her. Even if Charlie himself, for some reason, he keeps referring to her when he's talking about her as amazing and you really don't know what he's referring to throughout the film until it kind of makes sense at the end as to what's so amazing about this character that's just spending the whole time berating you but it's played well by Sink herself but the material that she was having to work with uh, just could have used a bit more substance Um, one of the big criticisms that they've been given the film though is that it's fat phobic which I wouldn't agree that there's a lot of talk about how these indignified scenes of him binge eating. I mean, this was made by Darren Aronofsky, who has shown the horrendous world of addiction with Requiem for a Dream, and not just the addiction to drugs. When we transcend over to the wrestler, the addiction to be a wrestler and how that eventually caused the breakdown of the body. And in Charlie's case, it happens to be that he's addicted to food, and I don't think it was done in a a glorified manner yeah it was trying to look disgusting but i mean a morbidly obese man eating himself to death that's going to be disgusting that is actually going to be disgusting to witness and you don't want charlie to die so seeing this guy essentially eat himself to death is uncomfortable to watch it's not dragging on i think the scenes where he does his binge eating were successful in making me feel sorry for the character because he was using his binge eating as a way to comfort himself after he got psychologically hurt by some of the characters that he's talking to in the film um this is almost like a a trilogy of how to say a, a trilogy of addiction movies requiem for a dream the wrestler and now the whale and yeah but look I would at black say, swan like she's addicted to bali and it ends up potentially killing her in the end Oh yeah, that's also so, I mean, true. He, he seems to have a thing for showing this, but I don't know why it's yeah. been singled out just because the character is overweight. So I would highly recommend a film. Like I'm in spoiler-free territory, but I am kind of dipping my toe a little bit into spoiler territory. The film does actually do everything in its power to devastate you as much as possible. It pulls no punches, it pulls every trick out of the book to make you feel as sorry for these characters as possible. And, you know, despite that, I think I've seen enough films, especially ones that are trying to hit you with a gut punch, because I quite like um, depressing films, that these little tricks out of the playbook, I'm going to be kind of savvy to that, and it doesn't work on me if I know that the film's actually trying to manipulate me into feeling Mm -hmm. sorry for characters. 
But come the end, I was feeling bad for Charlie and I was feeling bad for his situation. So I don't know what it was doing that was like in addition to the cheap tricks that I was seeing it do. But whatever it was, it was it was pretty effective and it was very successful in making me feel sad. I'm not going to say I cried. I'm not going to say that on a podcast. But if I wanted to cry, I probably could have. Um, but a lot of that will probably come down to the performances and not so much onto the directing style of Aronofsky, which the directing from Aronofsky was almost taking a backseat to the performances. It wasn't as stylized as a lot of his previous work, which, you know, all too often fell into um, almost an avant-garde type of storytelling, short of a scene or two in this where it kind of did that. But similarly to that of David Lynch and the straight story, sometimes being so basic can be as psychologically complex as something that is at visual value complex. So some people might see that kind of basic storytelling as boring, but this film wasn't boring. It is good. The performances are great. The visuals are great. The prosthetics are great. The music's great. And the story, once you finally realize what is actually happening and how everything ties together, the story itself also is great, which is unsurprising given that it's based on a theater uh, show in the first place. I'd say an 8 out of 10 would watch again. If you're a ugly crier, I wouldn't see it with anybody else. Maybe enjoy it on yourself. Put yourself in Charlie's shoes and just isolate yourself in a room and watch it if you don't want to go to the cinema to see it and just have a ball spelled B-A-W-L. Uh, well, okay, so you've seen The Whale. Now, I've seen, or, or take me the effort last night to watch All Quiet on the Western Front for the second time. First time I made about 10 minutes through and then I wasn't in the right mindset for it. But I sat through it last night. Um, now, my review won't be as in-depth as yours. It's just going to be a pretty basic, to the point. Um, I enjoyed it, for the most part, but I found myself kind of bored at times. And I don't know if that's because I went in expecting, you know, a sort of Saving Private Ryan-esque war film, um, and that's not really what I got. Now, it's interesting because, you know, it starts off with the whole, you know, talking people up and getting excited about the idea of representing your country and the young men all run off to war to fight, to serve their, their land. And they get to the front line and the reality is, you know, very different. And, you know, they're, they're getting bombed and they're getting told to go over the top and run towards oncoming gunfire. And they try to, you know, get water out of the trenches using their helmets and they're all freezing cold and all the rest of it. So the reality of war is thrown at you very quickly. And it's interesting because you are seeing, you know, the story from the German perspective as opposed to always being the Allies or the British or whatever. You're seeing these young men going to war for their country. Unlike many people, it's, you know, something they were they had to do. It wasn't something they initially wanted to do. And although it kind of feels like in, in this film that it is something they, the character anyway wanted to do. Um and it's an it's an interesting character story. I think you you know following this man this guy's development from being young naive joining the army to where he is at by by the end of the film and being pretty much you know um, a very much changed individual from his experiences of war. Um, but I just I wasn't sitting there the entire time 
like hooked on the film and really watching every aspect of it. And maybe if I'd seen it in the cinema, that would have been different. But it's also a long film, and it's not something to sit down and watch at the end of the day when you're maybe tired, because it's not a fast-paced film either. I think there's only two sort of war set pieces, um, a few bits mm-hmm. and bobs in between. Um, nicely shot. It's been nominated for cinematography, you know, at the Oscars, but... Um, Was that earned? I don't want to say no, because it, it is nice-looking film, and there's, there's some really cool, you know, parts where the action is kicking off and the way the camera moves in amongst it all, and, you know, it's very well choreographed, but then 1917 is not long out, so maybe because I've not long had that war fix, you know, from 1917, and that was done so well that another war film so soon afterwards, I'm not seeing anything I haven't seen already. Um, and maybe that's part of the reason why I find it maybe a bit boring, because it's just another war movie that I've already seen most of that kind of set-piece actions. Now, there was a few scenes, though, that did stick out to me. Um, one I'll mention, and one I won't mention, because it's maybe a spoiler type scene. It's not a spoiler, but it is a, it's a scene that you need to see first and something we could talk about after. But there's a, a scene where they're running across, they've been told to go over the top, they're running towards the enemy and they're just running into gunfire. And it's this dreek, dreary, nasty, you know, wet, rainy day. And all these men are running across the field and you've got like the rain and the mud. And just in the middle of it, just this red mist, which obviously all the blood from the guys getting shot and just this red mist of the earth. And I just thought, in a weird way, it was a really beautiful image because you had this dark, grey, greeny, muddy colour and then just this mist of red through the middle. Now, that that one, you know, I saw that, I remember at the time, I was kind of sitting up and looking at it and thinking, huh, oh, that's a very beautiful shot of a very horrible moment. That's your Oscar shot. That's your so, Oscar shot for yeah. sure. So there was that, but then there was also another scene which takes place in a bomb crater. And, uh, you know, it's two soldiers fighting each other. And it reminded me a lot, like the scene in Saving Private Ryan when the guys um, are fighting each other. And I might be wrong in saying this, but I think it's the German boy that they captured and then they let go. And then at the end, you know, at the end when they're, they're fighting in the room and you get stabbed by the, the bayonet and he's like trying to like sort of tell them be quiet kind of thing and that because that was so sort of like real um that's one of those ones that sort of stays with you but there's a scene in this and in, in this bomb uh, crater that was a very real moment between the two characters um and again that's one that'll probably stay with me and there's a few other little bits but i don't know but i maybe need to watch it again properly and give it its uh <laughs> give it give it another run because it is a long film. I was kind of tired when I watched it. It is very well shot. There's some beautiful imagery through that. The story's, you know, very good from the development of the character and the way they change through the duration of the story. But my initial thoughts after seeing it for the first time is that it's not something I'd be rushing back to see again. Um, anytime soon if ever again even so if I did watch it one more time to give it another proper run at it it might very well be the last time I watch it if not 
the last time I watched it for a very you know long period of time. Where Saving Private Ryan was a film I can still revisit now. Platoon is a film I can still revisit now. Apocalypse Now, I'll watch it now. You know, there's a lot of war movies that I'll revisit because I enjoyed them. But this wasn't one that just it just didn't didn't do it for me. So you see, it's it's difficult when it comes to war films. When it comes to war films, there's only um, there's only really a couple of avenues that you can take. You can either be going for authenticity, yeah, yeah, or do something that's um, like a, a fictional story to make it stand out from the crowd of other war films that are essentially all all trying to do the same thing. Just some do them better than others. Uh, a great example would be Inglorious Bastards that brought in the the fictional story of the bastards and um it it played with history to make it sort of more entertaining and more mm. fit into quentin tarantino's style um 1917 had the creative difference to other war films and that it was trying to all be made as if it was done in one shot yeah yeah and uh, saving private ryan it, although it was a war film it had its own story it wasn't just trying to recreate the horrors of war which yeah. so many films like it do that they had the mission that they had to complete. Whereas when it comes to trench warfare, if you go back to World War One, like All Quiet on the Western Front would have been the trenches, am I right? Yeah. Uh, what other story can you realistically tell except um, how the characters changed war is bad? Because, you know... The actual war element of World War One, from the soldier's perspective, was go over the end, like um, go over the top and get shot or don't get shot and retreat. That, that's kind of all that you have. So all you're left with is how war is affecting the characters. D- does this All Quiet on the Western Front have an actual story or is it just more option one that I mentioned there? It's an authentic telling of how things probably were back in trench warfare Well, I mean, from a German perspective. I believe, uh, again, don't quote in this because I haven't really done my research on it, but I believe the writer uh, has based the story on his experiences. So I think it's loosely based off of him and his journey through joining the military and then his experiences of war and how that changed him and how it's affected him. And then, you know... um, I mean, even like Platoon was based on Oliver Stone's experiences of Vietnam as a soldier. Yeah. Um, Jarhead was, you know, I don't know if there's any really, where that came from in terms of story and where it's based from, but that felt like a very real telling of a of a, of a story. Um, but even Band of Brothers, oh, even of Brothers. the Pacific, well, these again, were just the real the real life tellings of um, what happened. With those soldiers, yeah, they were. But I think the one that one of the ones that always stays with me again. It's a strange one because it's not a war film. It's a it's a TV show, and it was Blackadder, and it was the final episode when they they get the orders to go over the top, and you know yourself, if you know you know history. It was you went forward into enemy gunfire, and the the officers went behind you, and if you turned round, they shot you as a deserter. So you had had gunfire in front of you, gunfire behind you, and that that's one of those moments in in. TV shows where what was predominantly a comedy film, TV series, ended on a very poignant, sad note of all these men oh, that was went beautiful. over the top and probably died, and you know because of orders that were just 
And the screen fades out into the poppy fields. Yeah, as they run across. Yeah, and it's it's one of those ones that always just stayed with me as well, even though it was a TV show, not a big dramatic war scene. In fact, there wasn't any uh, Dad's Army. There's a scene in Dad's, uh, Dad's Army when they're training and they're running across the field and these old men running across with their guns and stuff like that. And, um, just little things. I don't know it's it wasn't. It didn't. It didn't tick any boxes of anything I hadn't seen before and I think that's probably why it just felt like another well well produced polished war movie and I think the I think the interesting aspect of it is it's been told from the German's perspective and I think if it was just another war film it probably wouldn't even have been talked about the way it's been talked about because I think there's an interesting angle on it and that's not to say it's not been executed well because it has been it just didn't tick my boxes at this time. And it didn't resonate change. with you. But right now I'm not in any rush to want to see it again. Okay. I mean, that's, that's, that's fair enough. Um, I, I could tell you if you haven't uh, already seen it, a really good original trench warfare movie. That's sounds like it's probably a little bit different to all quiet on the Western front. Did you don't, ever see Stanley see Kubrick's Paths of glory? <laughs> Paths of glory. No, I don't think I did. With with the concept being that the soldier orders his men to stop advancing because they're going to get killed by going mm. over the top. And the generals aren't happy with this, so pick three of his soldiers to meet firing squad to teach the other soldiers a lesson that that's not something you can do. Right. And Kirk Douglas, who plays the soldier that's called them back, um, is trying to defend them against these generals. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a war film taking place in the trenches, but then it becomes a political drama between uh, the disconnect and the the inhumanities that took place from the army against their own soldiers. Yeah. Uh, it's one of Stanley Kubrick's. It's not forgotten, but it's the the praises of it aren't sung nearly as much as maybe Full Metal Jacket or A Clockwork Orange or The Shining. It's one that I'd highly recommend, and if if anyone's seen it, I'd love to see what they think about it in the comments as well. Having not seen it, I can't really comment much about it, but it sounds like the kind of film that probably plays to the truths that people want to forget because countries killed their own people for acts of seemingly cowardice when really it's probably just logical common sense not to run forward into enemy gunfire when you've no means of defending yourself because all you all you were was cannon fodder at that point. And, you know, you, heard, you hear always about soldiers from World War One, especially were getting shell shock and had no idea what the hell was going on. And they were reacting to certain things, and they were getting hailed as cowards, and or as as gone insane, or whatever. And they were just being sent to firing squads, killed. And really, they were just suffering from the uh, from PTSD. Um, and these were know. in days where PTSD wasn't an no, it was called wasn't acknowledged. Then, no, yeah. it was not not acknowledged as being legitimate. You were just um, you know put you up against the wall and shot dead by dawn. Get away from your duties to, to fight for your king and country. But you know, anyway, war films, man, they they. They do create a good talking point, but I think um, All Quiet on the Western Front is probably, uh, right now, I'll, I'll say 7 out of 10. 7 out of 10, yeah. which isn't bad. It's, well, it, means it wasn't a bad film. I just would recommend. It just didn't work for me in the sense that I didn't get excited about it. I wasn't watching it on the edge of my seat, you know, feeling tense at times. But there were a few things in this in the film that did stand out. And uh, it'll be great if you ever actually watch it that we could talk about them properly. So, 
Yeah, uh, do you think it might be one of those war films that might appeal to a later generation that maybe hasn't grown up with a bunch of other films that have authentically portrayed war? I don't know. I mean, it is a remake. Yeah, yeah but it's a fun. remake from one of one of the first war movies ever made. Yeah, it's hard to say. I think um, I, I do know some older people who've watched it and they've thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, but if you put Saving Private Ryan or All Quiet on the Western Front and said pick one to watch, I'd take Saving Private Ryan. See, I've not even seen All Quiet on the Western Front. I'd probably be picking Saving Private Ryan as well. That's a phenomenal film. And did I tell you that I'm currently starting pre-production on the next Company of Terrors animation? Yeah, you mentioned it. What uh, Itch, is it called? The Itch, yeah. 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 You mentioned that, so I'm quite keen to see what you're going to do with that. Are you going to bring us some uh, live moments of uh, production? I'd like to live stream the process because one of the big things that I messed up on when I was doing Elevator is I didn't do any behind-the-scenes stuff. Mm. So I, th- I think someone left a pretty good comment on Facebook saying... One of the big selling points about Elevator isn't that it's made. One of the big selling points is that it was being made solely by one person over a very long period of time. Yeah. So anyone just watching that that doesn't know you personally won't understand that. They, they won't get that this is just a one-man effort to truly see how much effort went into it. So uh, I want to try and do that with the itch. Um, did I tell you the concept for the itch? No, you haven't. No, so I'm I'm having to currently build using my two animation tables that are kind of clamped together, a kind of kind of derelict alleyway that you might find a junkie sleeping behind the bins in. Okay, and um, the concept is that he's addicted to this substance that he has to continuously take. Mm-hmm. If he doesn't take it, the track marks in his arm start becoming like um bubbled and itchy and he's constantly scratching at them hence why um, it's called the itch Uh Um, but you know this is an animation you're free to do whatever you want with the story you can make it as ridiculous as possible for the horror element so when it's getting really bad or when he's trying to think of ways to fight his addiction uh, like to get money for it to make sure he can get the drugs Um, his track marks talk to him and convince him to do bad things so that he can feed his addiction. Right, okay. So, you know, the the idea is that on the arm I'm going to have a big, um, one big slit of a track mark Uh that's going to then, like, mould into a mouth and talk to the character like the devil on the shoulder telling him to do bad things. And uh, then people invade the alleyway uh, doing criminal activities and everything starts coming down from there. Um, I I can't wait to start working on it. I'm probably not going to make it quite as long as Elevator uh, was. Maybe a a nice svelte 20 minutes, but um, I'm going to start live streaming the creation. The problem is I'm going to have to make a stone wall instead of just buying a wallpaper that replicates stone wall. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to have to personally stick together enough bricks to fill an alleyway. And these are like eight scale bricks. So we're, we're talking hundreds of them. I'm, I'm going to be like a, a tradesman sitting in the back of the room here, putting all these bricks together to make a wall. And I'm going well, to have you to paint it. Do something like a polystyrene like piece and then use like a, a hot, forget what you call it now. And just kind of yeah. melt the shapes into the wall to make it look like bricks. You can, but you can also buy bags of like 500 uh, miniature bricks 
and just spray an adhesive on them and put them together. And I, I can't do like fuck polystyrene. By the way, polystyrene gives me goosebumps. Nowhere, nowhere near me is polystyrene gone. Good to know. I'll keep some handy for next time we need a bounce board. <laughs> you know, I'll just come up to you, and be like bouncing light off you. Well, that's good. I mean, I think it'll be interesting to see your behind the scenes on that when when you do it. And obviously, it's something we can put in the channel and people can ask questions and get involved with the, you know, stop motion animation because I think it's something you don't see a lot of anymore. Um, no. You know, once upon a time, it was like the thing in film, uh, Clash of the Titans, I believe. Is it Jason the Argonauts? Um, these kind of things with the Jason skeleton. Jason the Argonauts. And I can watch that skeleton scene again and again yeah, and again. You don't want you don't see it anymore. I know you're you're a big fan of Lee Hardcastle and the stuff he's doing. So, um, yeah. So I hope to have him on the show one day soon oh, as well. Maybe maybe you'll, maybe you'll speak out to him and see what he says. It'd be great to talk to him. But I, I've and, got a dialogue currently going with him, so I'm sure I'll be able to work something out. Fair but uh, speaking of behind the scenes uh, stuff, how about that Johnny Leggett? Johnny Leggett? Yeah. What's behind the scenes about that? Well, he's been performing phenomenally well on YouTube. And um, unless I'm mistaken, I hear that you've talked to him about the potential of bringing him back. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's quite happy to come back and have another chat. And I think this time around we can make it a little bit more informal and maybe just, you know, have some tell some funny stories of his time because he's, he's got loads of them. I've heard a few already and it'd be great if those could be shared with the public and I know there's some stuff that obviously isn't shareable and there's but there are plenty of stories that are and I think those would be fun to hear from. And another thing I would like to do as well is maybe open the floor to some questions from the audience who've seen you know his interview and having have questions for a former French Foreign Legion soldier. Um, so that'd be interesting. But, you know, myself as well in March through April, uh, we'll be working on a feature film. Um, I can't give any specifics about it, but at the moment, but certainly it's got some interesting cast attached to it. And, uh, you know, maybe down the road we can mention it or talk about it a bit more openly. But right now, that's going to keep me pretty busy through March and April. Um, so you might need to find a few guests to come on and, and fill my spot for a couple of weeks while I'm a bit off the uh, beaten track. But um, looking forward to that. So, Interesting year so far. We've we've kicked off with a podcast and we've got our Ask Us Anything. You've got the itch coming and I've got a film at the studio going on and um It's gonna be a good year. Yeah. It's just it feels now, that way. But before we wrap up, and it feels like I think uh, we're gonna start wrapping up this podcast now, I wanna give you for your feature film some solid, solid advice. Okay? okay. Solid advice. <laughs> All right. I've known you for some time now. I think I'm fairly well educated on like the theory of film, the history of film, what makes a good film, what makes a bad film, what makes a good performance, what makes a bad performance, yeah? Do not cast John Hanna. I don't care what happens, do not cast John Hanna if that opportunity arises. This is going to be a running feature of me having a go at John Hanna. Okay? You know what? Just for you... I'm going to cast John Hanna. I'm going to bring him on the podcast and you can confront him face to face and we can have it out, the two of you, you know, Hanna versus Fender and go from there. It is quite a shame that earlier on, one cast member of The Mummy I was singing praises to and now the other cast member of The Mummy I I want nothing to do with. But you know what's a shame about that? I I remember his character in The Mummy being quite funny and actually It was great. It was great. 
It was great. So what is it? But now you're just a hater. Well, that was like close to 18 years ago. 